Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm not here with Bill, but I'm actually not in this episode, so that's fine. Today, we're bringing you a bonus episode where Bill interviews Gordon Maupin, a general naturalist, but more notably, the former director of the Wilderness Center in Northeastern Ohio, and along with Joanne Balbeck and Gary Popotnik, the former host of Wild Ideas, the podcast. And before you get too used to stereo sound in your headphones, let me switch over to my cell phone because Bill forgot the memory card for our nice mic and the entire interview is recorded with his phone. Okay, that's worse. So Wild Ideas was and is an excellent resource for information on natural history. And it was definitely a strong influence on Bill's and my decision to start our own podcast after it ended in November 2014, which was less than a year before we released the first episode of The Field Guides. Bill will mention it briefly, but if you're interested in listening to Wild Ideas, I'll have a link in the episode notes to a page where you can listen to 12 episodes for free or pay $20 for the entire back catalog of 285 episodes. So I highly suggest that you give Wild Ideas the podcast a listen to at some point in the near future. But for now, I think I'll stop talking and let you listen to Bill's conversation with Gordon Maupin. Test, test, test. Looks like you're good. Yep. Looks good. Yep. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill, and I am not here with Steve today. I am actually outside our usual area. I am in Ohio, and I have a special guest tonight, Gordon Maupin naturalist extraordinaire and former co-host of the Wild Ideas podcast, which we had mentioned previously here on the Field Guides. So, good evening, Gordon. Hey, great to be here. And I want to start out by saying thank you for giving up a beautiful June Sunday evening to spend some time talking to me. Oh, not a problem. I enjoy talking to nature whenever I get a chance. <laughs> All right, so folks, for those of you that don't know, um, Gordon was the co-host, as I mentioned, of a podcast called Wild Ideas, and that podcast was really one of my inspirations for starting up the Field Guides. I had listened to Wild Ideas for really almost as long as you'd been recording it, and when you guys retired, uh, a void was left in my life, <laughs> and I'd been tossing around the idea of, of doing a podcast for a while. Um, Gordon, I don't know if I'd mentioned, I'd been uh, naturalist previously at the Beaver Meadow Audubon Center. Okay. Um, I left that to become a classroom teacher, but still was volunteering out at Beaver Meadow, do birding, um, doing nature hikes when I can, guided hikes. And I just felt like that would be a good way to keep my feet into the natural history waters was to do my own podcast. And I met my co-host Steve uh, through bird banding out at Beaver Meadow Audubon Center. And it turned out he was having a similar idea as well. He had been a fan of the podcast. So can you give people an idea just of what Wild Ideas was? Well, what I'd say, Wild Ideas, the podcast, was sort of my brainchild. Oh, okay. uh, From listening to other podcasts and realizing, well, heck, I can do that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we ran it for like five years. The Wilderness Center was the organization. I was the executive director of the Wilderness Center before retiring. And uh, we ran that probably five years, once a week for five years. I mean, we had several hundred episodes. All right, that's impressive. You did it every week. Yeah, it, it was quite a, you know, it was a horse you had to get on and ride I, when we started doing it. Uh, but, but Gary and Joanne and I really enjoyed doing it. Um, and Gary was a conservation biologist. Gary's a conservation biologist. Joanne was a science educator, but obviously a very nature-oriented science 
person. Did she work at the Whitman yeah, Center? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. She was my education director there. Okay. And Gary was my land stewardship director. Okay. And I was the executive director. And I, I you know, my, my master's degree is in botany, field botany. But I was always a general naturalist. I, you know, I guess too short an attention span. You know? <laughs> right. So I Me too. was listening to your Flying Squirrel podcast. I'm pretty sure we talked Flying Squirrels at some point on <laughs> yep. Wild Ideas. Yeah. And and so um, I, I took the role of, you know, as the general naturalist. And uh, when we started Wild Ideas, uh, there's a, a few things we said. We said we were going to stick closely to the science. Good. And uh, that was very important to us, and that we would always speak of evolution as a fact, because, <laughs> duh, it is. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and that we also would, you know, wanted to let our, our passion for the natural world show, you know, which we did. Oh, definitely. You definitely. And, and so the the format we used with Wild Ideas is that uh, Gary, Joanne, and I, the, the first half of the show, it usually ran around an hour. Uh, the first half, we would come, we would just, some random nature thing. You got, that, each of you brought in a yeah, different topic. Yeah, yeah, each of us would bring in a different topic of some random thing, you know, that we noticed. Which actually helped, inspired us to observe nature more closely, right, right. you know, because we had to come up with something every week. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we would do, you know, some quick and dirty research on it because we're not doing a scientific treatise. Right. You know, we're giving people basic facts and, and communicating a passion. Doing something for the layperson. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so we, the, the, we would do our three topics. And then uh, we would have either an interview or we would pick one of the three things and explore it in greater depth. And so the second part was either an interview or an, a more in-depth, something that one of the first three topics, you know, begged for a little more in-depth discussion. Right, right. So that was, it was one or the other for the second part of the podcast. Now, did you right away come up with the idea of all three of you doing it? Yes, uh, I, it was important. It, it worked out great uh, because uh, Gary, Joanne, and I were pretty good foils for one another. Okay, and you um, knew them well. So. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and uh, I, it was it was terrific to have Joanne because it was good to have a female voice. Sure. To counteract the two male voices. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that on the field. And, yet. and then jo Joanne is the educator. Gary and I would occasionally wander into the the weeds of technical <laughs> biology or or whatever and joanne would you know make us define our terms and that you know not let us get too technical and i feel you know. i feel i do that with steve yeah that i'm the the one who's in the classroom i teach second grade chiefly but i also teach one night a week at the university uh, near buffalo so i'm always thinking you know, how can we make this as accessible yeah. as possible? So I'm very often stopping him and saying, what does that mean? Tell people what that means again. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I would say is people can go to the Wilderness Center uh, website. Right. And there's they keep a few, it's really expensive, and the Wilderness Center is a nature center, so it's sure. broke always. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but they keep some episodes up on the website. You kind of have to hunt around a little right. bit. But you can find some websites. And, and I believe that if somebody wanted the whole stuff for a fee they would they we actually found this out okay because a couple months ago me 
just doing something quick, I posted on our Facebook page, hey, if you haven't listened to the to Wild Ideas, the podcast, mm-hmm. go back and check it out. It was one of the inspirations for our podcast. And I posted it, and I think I posted the iTunes page. Oh, yeah, that's... But then we've quickly found out from people trying to do that, yeah. the episodes aren't there anymore. Yeah. So someone found out that if you contact the Wilderness Center, they will send you all of the episodes for $20 on a flash drive. All, tw- all, all of them? Wow. All of them. So. Oh, wow. I'll have to go give them my 20 bucks. <laughs> recover <laughs> all those episodes. That's what was reported to us by, yeah. uh, by our fans. So, yeah. folks, I would say to listeners out there, if you haven't listened to Wild Ideas, Turn this episode off and go track down some episodes of Wild Ideas because it really is fantastic. Um, and, you know, I was thinking on the way down here, it really influenced me because coming up as I did, just the people that I talked to, I came up with uh, a naturalist training that was based a lot in folklore and ethnobotany. Mm-hmm. It didn't have a hard science background. And when I started listening to your podcast, there was one episode that sticks out in my mind. It was one where homeopathy came up. Uh huh. And listening to you talk, I could tell you had very little patience for homeopathy. And I don't mean that in a negative way. You just say, let's call it what it is. It's a pseudoscience. Yes. And you just presented it so matter-of-factly where... People in my background that I respected and their opinion respected who did use homeopathy, that really made me stop and think and say, whoa, you know, here's someone whose opinion I greatly respect. I didn't know you personally at the Mm -hmm. time, but um, that made me start to question more. I'd already started to question some things that I had just always kind of accepted as truth. being in natural history and education, there's a lot of things that people present as fact. Sure. sure you come across, daddy long legs are the most poisonous sure. spiders you can come across. Yeah, right, yeah. And many people don't like being disabused of these notions. Yeah, toads cause warts. Yeah. Right, to- like a lot of those <laughs> yeah, things. Right. And that really opened my eyes in, in a good way. I was meeting people and hanging around people that had a more much more skeptical viewpoint. And I would say you help set my feet more firmly on that path. Um, And, you know, I I had started teaching at the university then, so I had to do a lot more homework. I was teaching an intro to environmental studies class. Uh So I had to do a lot more of teaching myself about just the basics of ecology and and biology and evolution. Sure. Uh, And what is a theory when you're speaking of it scientifically, not in the colloquial sense, you know, the theory of evolution is accepted fact. Because in science, a theory is something that is backed up by... Well, the, the evolution is both a theory and a fact. It's a fact that it happened Correct. and still happens. Right. It, it never stops happening. That That is a fact. And then a theory is, well, how does it work? And then how how can you use it to make predictions about the natural right. world? Right. And, and science and, really has to call it a theory, though, because right. science is really, in one sense, waiting for someone to disprove it. Sure. And, I, you know, as soon as someone comes up with right. something better, I'll, I'll have to say, well, look at the evidence. I think that's pretty unlikely. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, should someone come up with something better? Right. Well, I think there's a good spot also to, to tell people that, you know, this particular episode, it's going to be a bonus episode for us. And it's going to be a different format, obviously, a, more of an interview. Steve and I had been tossing around the idea 
uh, of doing bonus episodes where we sat down with naturalists, people in science, people that we respect, and just give them a chance to to talk to us and, and mm-hmm. tell some stories. Um, this started back with our Christmas bird count episode, which some of our listeners may have heard, where one of the people that was part of my naturalist training, he gave me my first job as a naturalist, David Junkin. We went to his house during our Christmas bird count. He has an incredible bird feeder setup. Sure. And after tramping on trails for hours in the cold, we go to Dave's and sit down and he gives us coffee and he even has his bird feeders mic'd. So as we sit inside, yeah, yeah. we can listen to the birds and quickly uh, up our list yeah, sure, sure. Um, in the comfort of his home. But he told us just you know through talking lots of great stories and that really inspired Steve and I to do this. So uh, I was heading down here to, to Cleveland with my family and I knew you were um, in the general area of Cleveland and I sent Gordon uh, an email, kind of a shot in the dark. And I was amazed how fast you got back to me. <laughs> I actually called Steve right up and said, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> Gordon got right back to me. I think this is going to happen. So yeah. again, uh, I appreciate you doing this, but I think a good way to to get the more conversational part of the interview going is what can you remember as like your first experience in nature? You, you know, uh, I think I was a, a, a child of nature from right from the beginning. From the diapers, anyway. <laughs> you know, uh, was there an adult in your life that? Uh, yeah, you know, my 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 dad was sort of an outdoorsman, but certainly not educated in it, and. Uh, you know, he was a hunter and a fisherman sure. and, uh, he liked the outdoors and being active outdoors, but he, he was certainly not educated in natural sciences. But I, I think for me, uh, and it goes back to some episodes we talked about in Wild Ideas, uh, interviews with Ken Finch, it, it really goes back to early childhood, right? really early childhood. And, you know, I have memories of before I was in school, wading in creeks. Uh, <laughs> you were a creek rat. And um, Me too. And I, I, I have this childhood memory, and I must have been in like first grade, and I know that I couldn't tell time. <laughs> but I was, I know, you know, as a kid, you know, I can, I just have this memory of being in class and knowing that school was going to be out, and there was a drainage ditch that where I could go, I waded up and down and caught crawdads, <laughs> crayfish, right. and in this drainage ditch, and that was that was like that was my recreation was doing that. And uh, my dad, you know, grew up and you know worked in corporate America, and he was transferred, and we would always, uh, when you know every few years, he would be transferred to another place, and we would go and and cities were expanding real big and we would often my parents would buy a house you know in the new developments which happened to be where the farmers had been bought out and the developers were putting up houses and there was always land where the houses hadn't been Uh, built yet so it was wild land that wasn't a park you know where nobody was telling you you couldn't do things (laughs) and so um you know, me and other neighborhood kids and everything, we, you know, that's where we played. Sure. That's and where you had your adventures. We had our adventures there. Yeah. And, you know, always it was, you know, building forts or wading up and down creeks or climbing trees or 
doing other things that we would be appalled at people. <laughs> all these unsafe things, right? Yeah, all these unsafe things that, <laughs> that we would be appalled nowadays, you know. Right. And there wasn't all the boogeyman fears. Uh, you know, parents had kids on a longer leash. Sure. I got in trouble more for not getting home for dinner, right. you know. Than anything, that was probably the number one thing I got in trouble for. Sure, I, I was out doing serious playing, <laughs> <laughs> and probably some stuff that you could have gotten in trouble yeah, for probably, if they had known, right? Yeah, probably <laughs> <laughs> on more than one occasion. Sure, sure. No, but, I was. I, I did the same so, thing. So, so that was that was clearly you know my my earliest exposure to the natural world, and it, it is amazing when you get in at a conference or something with other naturalist people that are professionals in natural sciences how many of them have similar childhood experiences right and that was that was a theme that we came back to over and over in wild ideas the podcast was the importance of going out and playing right for, for young kids to go out and play and for many many years in the the natural science education field we had things backwards we thought it gee, if we people attend our classes and listen to our lessons, they'll learn to love the natural world. That's backwards. People love the natural world, and then they're inspired to learn the science. And the, and the love of the natural world comes very early by frequent positive experiences with nature, to quote my friend Ken Finn. <laughs> and Gary used to end every episode by telling people to get their kids that outside... Was- that was very deliberate. Sure. It's, that was very deliberate on our part was to to you know remind people the importance of getting outside. So should we pick up that torch? You should you <laughs> absolutely should. <laughs> it, it's important. Uh, I agree. You know it, it is it is really important that that people let their kids encourage their kids right. to go out. Get wet, get muddy, <laughs> get dirty, get dirty. No, because that's think... actually healthy. We probably did an episode on the hygiene hypothesis. Actually, getting dirty health right. is is good, good for your immune system. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and I don't know how much it's hit here yet in Ohio, but in Western New York, within the past few years, ticks have yes. really started to spread, and you would not believe the hysteria that yes. is coming, riding that wave right. of people really being afraid to send their kids outside. Yeah, we did an episode on ticks. We know? did. <laughs> <laughs> and talked to the tick guy. You can, you know, you can treat clothing right. uh, for ticks, and it will survive multiple washes. That, so that, that's, you know, that's something you can deal with. I was always real arrogant about ticks because I spent a, a lot of my younger years in, in the Ozarks, which were, you know, ticks were everywhere. I, I can remember one of my first jobs leading nature walks. I would, you know, I'd lead my nature walk in a little loop trail with a bunch of people, and I would, I would go back in and pull four or five ticks sure. off. Sure. <laughs> it was just part of it's just, the routine. You, you just, yeah, it right. was it was just part of the, but, the, you know, Lyme disease wasn't an issue then. Right. And Rocky Mountain spotted fever was pretty rare then, so there weren't the diseases um, to be concerned about, so I definitely advise people to go to the Tick Encounter website and right. and get the stuff and treat a set of play clothes. So. We we uh, my class just had a, a field trip near the end of the year. We went to a local nature center, and we did find 
uh, after the hike, a few ticks sure. on several kids. So yeah. thankfully, the year prior to that, our principal had actually canceled um, some field trips because yeah. of fear yeah. of ticks. Well, irrational fear right. it seems to be the rule of the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, My daughter, who was in kindergarten two years ago, she brought home from her school a five-page printout that they had sent home with every child with a huge headline saying, Lyme disease is the epidemic of our time. And page after page of this hysterical stuff that you could tell was just cut and pasted off the internet. Yeah. It was just very disappointing to see. Yeah. So, but we did a, we did an episode on ticks for sure. that very reason, sure. because we wanted to say, this is yeah. what to be concerned about. This is what to do about it. But don't let it stop you from going outside. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not, it's not a reason. And, and I think the hysteria is a little bit overblown, but I, right. you know, I'd it's something to be concerned about. Yeah, sure. Take but the countermeasures. Just like when you get in the car and go driving someplace, yeah. you know, be concerned about safety. Yeah, but. put a lightning rod on the barn. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit now? So you gave us a little bit of background on, you know, how you developed your love of nature. How did that translate into a career? What's the story behind that? Well, uh, you know, like. Most kids graduate from high. Well, in high school, I took all the biology I could. I, I you know, took an advanced biology course and everything, and decided when I went to college I'd major in biology. But my my goal was to work in the outdoors somehow, you know, and uh, you know, so that's what I did. Is I got a, a biology major at the, the Missouri State University, and. Uh, then went on to, to get a master's, but I, I took a, a wide a wide variety of courses, both in zoology and botany, to have a, a balanced background. You know, if the course interested me, I took it. You know, I took <laughs> ichthyology, although I never did much with that. But you know, I took ornithology, took plant taxonomy. You know, I took courses that would you know that were the natural world. And then I was uh, very fortunate. I, I had a friend um, that I was rooming with at the time that uh, he had managed to get a seasonal naturalist job with a state park, and he told me how to go about doing that. And so I managed to get a seasonal naturalist job at uh, a Missouri state park. Nice. And uh, I did that for three summers uh, as a seasonal naturalist. During college? Yeah, during college. Nice. And even uh, I did my research for my master's on that park on the floor of that park and uh, so uh, I was able to combine you know getting the master's degree with getting the uh, you know with a with a job that paid really poorly but sure was, you know <laughs> who cares you know were you doing interpretation then teaching yes okay. yes I was doing interpretation as interpretive naturalist a seasonal naturalist okay. and so I did nature hikes and and uh, had you ever led hikes before no, and and I got no training whatsoever. You know, at that <laughs> anybody time. can do it, right? Yeah, yeah well, well, yeah. And I was pretty lousy the first year. Like we all were, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty rotten, and uh, but it, you know, improved. Yeah. Of course, I was learning a whole lot, a lot more. You know, when I was I was doing the floor of that park, and so, you know, I was between nature walks I was out exploring the park and every night I was you know in in the 
the place where I was living, you know, I had a dissecting scope there and was keying out plants. Wow. And so, I mean, it was, you know, and you, this park was remote. You couldn't hardly even get a radio station. And so, I, <laughs> man, I was able to do my work. You're you like know. Ed Abbey in the yeah. arches, right? A little bit, yeah. A little <laughs> bit, you know, it was... It was great, uh, you know. It was really, and, it, and it, you know, I, there was no distractions from doing my work because there wasn't anything else to do. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So then, so that was that was a great experience. And then, you know, as I was finishing up the masters, uh, you know, my professors, oh man, they wanted me to go get a PhD. I mean, that's what they knew. They were college professors. Sure, that's what they knew. But you know, for some reason, you know, I knew that that wasn't my calling oh. to, to be a PhD research research guy that that my I really liked communicating to people about nature from this naturalist job I, I, I liked that and so uh, when I finished my master's it was a downtime in the economy there were precious few jobs so when was this if I can ask oh this would have been 76. 75, 76. Okay. I, you know, my, and so I, it was in, in this time. And uh, so I decided I would go get a second master's in, in journalism oh, wow. uh, at the University of Missouri, which is a premier journalism school. Why journalism? Uh, science writing. Oh, okay. uh, you know, and that I thought, you know, if I be, could become a science journalist, I'd, you know, be communicating nature but I was I went there and I was not a good student in journalism because I was suddenly now I'd been a, a grad student now I was taking undergrad courses and uh, my heart wasn't really in some of that and so I would do a semester of journalism school and not like it that much and then uh, I had a, an old boss that with the state parks that would call me up for temporary jobs as a naturalist. <laughs> so I'd do a semester, and then I'd go do a, a job for a semester, and then I'd come back to journalism school. But I, I, uh, the the great thing about the University of Missouri is it had a fabulous jobs board, and I knew I, I needed to get out of school. And when you say board, you mean like an actual physical board? Yeah, it, it, this is remember this is ancient time. <laughs> and so I I started going and checking the you know they'd have physical paper postings right. on a bulletin board, and I would be checking that every day. And, and uh, one day I went there in a job uh, as a uh, an outdoor writer photographer for uh, the Oklahoma Wildlife Department. And so I applied for that job and got it. Wow! Did you have background in photography? Uh, yeah, that was when I was when I went to college. You know, here again, this is the nature kid. You know, the outdoor guy. And and one thing about a good sized university is there's all these extracurricular activities. And there was a cave exploring club there. It was called Heart of the Ozarks Grotto Hog, for short. <laughs> And their logo was a big old Razorback, you know, because it was, you know, Missouri Ozarks, you know. Sure. And uh, so uh, I joined Hog and went on my weekends and that sort of thing. Uh, did a lot of cave exploring and mapped caves, went into vertical caves. You know, it was adventure wow. and it was, it was the outdoors even though you were inside a cave. Right. And did a lot of cave exploring exploring type stuff both recreationally and then the, the club was sponsored by the geology department there so I took a quite a lot of geology 
not enough to call myself a geologist, but quite a lot of geology, which was terrific background. Sure. You know, in addition to the biology, to have this uh, the solid background in geology that I got from being active in the caving club and then taking some courses along that line. And so one of the things when you go into caves, certain caves are just spectacularly beautiful. And so there were people in that caving club that were photographers, you know, and it can be a very complicated process to photograph a cave because it's dark. It's it's dark. Not a lot of light. (laughs) Not a lot of light. And so... Uh, I sometimes I would assist photographers that were trying to, you know, to get photographs okay. in caves, you know, that that showed the, the natural beauty of the cave, and so I, I pretty much then, you know, got a camera, you know, a, a good camera, and and taught myself photography. So I was self-taught on that, but I came became a pretty good photographer. Now, did you go all the way at that time with? developing yourself? No, no, I I never, I shot slides mostly. I I did a little bit on the side, some dark room, black and white dark room work. That was real common back then. Yeah. This is pre-digital photography, (laughs) you know, all chemical photography. I remember. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, so I did learn photography. And so then when I got that job in Oklahoma, uh, you know, I was writing for Outdoor Oklahoma Magazine, which was a hunting and fishing magazine. Okay. I mean, that was really a little state wildlife department. Sort of sure, we have one in New York, the yeah, conservationist. Spe- yeah, especially yeah. At, at that period, they were fish and game. Right, hardcore. Hardcore fish and game outfits. But, I, you know, I was receptive to that and could do some stuff. Sure. And uh, so, you know, that... You know, that was like my first real job, and uh, I was there really a relatively short time. And uh, then people I knew in Missouri, uh, Missouri, the Missouri Department of Conservation had passed a sales tax to support conservation, a one-eighth of one-cent sales tax in the state of Missouri to support conservation, forestry, fisheries, wildlife. Um, and so I, I had con, you know a lot of contacts back there, and they uh, you know notified me of a job to be the naturalist program coordinator there. Oh wow! And so I, w- I was hired to be what they called the naturalist program coordinator in Missouri. And while I was doing that, I wrote actually wrote a plan for Missouri to build nature centers with the you know the proceeds from that sales tax which they which they ultimately did they as built, part of the coordinator job yeah yeah oh, wow. I, I wrote this plan uh, and part of that I toured a lot of nature centers and I and uh, you know interviewed the staff and everything else and the nonprofit nature centers were to me that was where it was at <laughs> and that that job even though it sounds like a cool job it was the job from hell <laughs> It was literally the job from hell. Why? Because uh, I was. They they had lumped all the the non-game, the endangered species, the natural areas, and they threw me in with this group as well of all the non-traditional stuff that they'd promised the public. And the, the you know the hardcore fish and game guys were terribly terribly threatened oh. by you know endangered you know 
what's this guy preserving endangered species? You know, what, <laughs> what are these natural areas? There are cancer spreading over. I mean, some one guy actually literally called natural area the cancer spreading over the land. Places where they couldn't hunt and fish, or no? No, they they were or just state run. They were they were just not traditional fish and game. Okay, and, and they were terribly threatened. I think they became more enlightened as time went on, but they. You know, initially it was so outside the the traditional hunting and fishing paradigm for a state fishing game agency that sure it was it was it seemed a, foreign. Yeah, it was it was foreign and it was threatening. You know, because the you know they were always threatening because there has always been some anti hunters out. Sure, and of course none of us were anti hunting. You know, we have a biologist view of the natural world, and anyway, uh, so that job was not pleasant. How old were you? I was in my late twenties so, to early thirties, and then and so anyway, I then moved on and got hired by the Wilderness Center as a an executive director, and I quickly became went from being a naturalist. They hired me because I was a good naturalist, but the last thing they needed was a naturalist. <laughs> you know, they, they needed a nonprofit administrator. Administrator. Now, did you know that at the time? Well, I didn't know it at the time, but I realized it <laughs> fairily quickly, and I right. ro rose to the challenge and. Uh, so then, you know, then I administered the organization. And that was what was so great about Wild Ideas is instead of, you know, just fundraising and organizational management and all that sort of stuff, when we started Wild Ideas, the podcast, then I could be a naturalist. You could feel like a naturalist again. I could again. be a naturalist again. <laughs> you know, I kept up with the field. You know, I never, you know, I never let the science get too far ahead of me. Sure. Uh, you know, I didn't read a lot of technical papers, but I kept up with it with, you know, in a lot of different ways, books and that sort of thing. So, from the time you came director or executive director of the Wilderness Center, right? How many years passed before you started Wild Ideas? A lot, right? A lot, but it was a small, you know, it was a small nature center at, at the time. I mean, there was just a few employees when I started there, and uh, so even though I was the executive director, you were a jack of all trades, right? And so I, I did a fair amount of educational stuff. And my orientation was more doing uh, programming that is more on an adult level okay. than uh, the, the small kids. Which uh, is a we, different animal. Which is, is a different animal. <laughs> and that was what... No pun intended. Well, that's what, yeah, right, that's what the organization needed at the time. Uh, was to involve adults because adults make the make the donations. <laughs> Financial district. Yeah, they make the donations. So, uh, you know, it was really, you know, I, I worked really hard to get in adults involved. Right. And and so then, you know, as it became more successful, I got pushed more and more into the back office. <laughs> and uh, We need other people to approach. And so then, uh, you know, when podcasting became... A thing, a thing, yeah. right on your desktop. You know, anybody could do it. Then, uh, you know, I listen. You know, started listening to a few. Po I was listening to science podcasts you know, and realized that, gee, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, right. And and uh, Joanne and uh, Gary were were open. You know, of course, I was their boss, so <laughs> they didn't have a choice to be. But no, they were very. They were voluntold. They, yeah, yeah, they were voluntold. Yeah, and but you know, they were they were happy happy to do it. Sure. And 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 enjoyed doing it. We can tell. Yeah. I mean, and I was going to say, if you know, many years, decades, in fact, had passed from the time you were hired until the time you started doing Wild Ideas. Yeah. I had the sense 
that you had been teaching nature programs right along. Like, it didn't seem to me as a listener that you had spent any amount of time away from interacting with the public as an educator. So, um, no, I, 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 al- I always had. Good. Um, but when, when we were doing wild, wild ideas, uh, you know, I told Gary and Joanne, and I told the people we were interviewing that uh, when we're, you know, when we're interviewing somebody or when we're, we're talking, I, I want the listener to be at the table with us. They're our friends. They just don't say much. <laughs> and we're all having a beer together, and we're, we're talking about nature. Right. And, and, and I wanted that, that friendly warmth like we're having right now. Right. I wanted that friendly warmth. To, to come across in the podcast, and for the most part, it did. I think so. Once, once in a while, you would get uh, somebody you would interview that just never, <laughs> you know, they were used to lecturing to classrooms, and, and, you know. But you know, generally, I, I wanted that warmth. Right. Uh, and honestly, that that's what happened with the field guides was kind of the germ because our our friend Matt Candeas he does a podcast called In Defense of Plants, mm-hmm. which is. For the most part, an interview show. Right. But when it started, Steve did a few episodes with him. And Matt did a few episodes where he just recorded taking a hike with friends. Uh huh. And for Steve and I, those were some of our favorite episodes. Right. Where it was just like, this is like when we go out as friends and go on a nature hike and we're making yeah. stupid jokes and we're, right. you know, right. just trying to make each other laugh while we're learning together right. with field guides. So that was the germ of the idea. There was this vacuum we felt left with wild ideas being gone. And we said, you know, we're always going hiking. Why don't we just record ourselves, you know, pick a topic and um, see what happens. Yeah. And really, when we started, we didn't think anyone would listen. And yeah. we, we really still have no idea how many people are listening. <laughs> but um, well, I know exactly what you mean. Just well, wild ideas, we were getting 100,000 downloads a year. Wow. By the, you know, by the time I retired. Yeah. You went out on a high note, like Seinfeld. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess. You know, but, you know, we were, I mean, probably if I'd had a budget to market it, we right. probably could have had millions. <laughs> I, I really do feel that. I way. think so, too. I had no budget to market it. <laughs> it was just a labor of love. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so when you decided to retire, I mean, can I ask how come you didn't keep doing, you just wanted to get off that treadmill or... Well, you know, getting up in years, and um, I, I had been very ambitious through, ambitious not from for myself, but for the success of the Wilderness Center. Sure. Uh, and I saw that ambition waning, and uh, circumstances came. You know, like Joanne, Gary, and me, and several other people in the staff. We were all kind of the same age. Okay. And I was just. Uh, year or two older than and you know I was into my 60s and I'm thinking you know <laughs> I I need to be the first one to go so that the the new guy the, the new executive director can come in and will have an opportunity to name his own team through gently through retirement sure that we're going to be that were inevitable, you know, they, the train was rolling down the tracks. <laughs> that, and, I, and so, you know, my ambition wasn't what it once was uh, to, you know, to pour the effort in it takes to run a nonprofit. Right. And uh, 
and then looking to the future of the organization. And I just really realized that that was it was time. Right. And, and so I retired. And I, I I miss doing wild ideas. I really did miss doing it. I sure didn't miss the long hours of post production. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a long time. It's. Yeah, I, you know, and we we divvied up post production. We took turns doing the post production on the episodes. So, can I just ask how long would it take to edit an episode for you guys? For for us, usually I would I would come home. I mean, I didn't do it at work because work was busy and right. they need uninterrupted time. And I I would it would take a few hours okay. at least um, for full post-production and get it uploaded and everything right at least because yep. you know you got an hour long and you've got to edit all the uhs right <laughs> you know you edit all this stuff out and uh and then we would put a layer of natural sounds in the background and uh and you know try to make it, it a, takes a long time and assemble the pieces and so it takes it takes hours, and it so does. I would do it late till late at night. I, <laughs> I, you know, my wife would go to bed, and then I'd start editing. It's yeah. It takes us. I would say an average of five to six. It takes me yeah. an average of five to six hours to edit edit yeah. an hour long episode. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably that's not unrealistic. Right. Sometimes you could do it a little bit faster. Depends on who you're interviewing. <laughs> yes. And what kind of gift of gab they have. <laughs> Definitely. All right, so you had previously mentioned that you had an idea that if people came to your nature center, you could instill a love of nature in them, but you felt they had that a little backwards. Yeah. I, well, I that idea was a little backwards. That, that, that idea was a little backwards. Okay. It was, I think, and this is really infused the nature education profession now is the idea you need to really do what you can to get kids out at a young young age right um, and my I guess where I was going with that line of thinking is one of the reasons that I left the nature center game I mean there were a lot of reasons I'd done it about about 10 years so mm -hmm. I did two or three years part-time and then seven years full-time yeah um, as, as at a very small nature center and I got to say during that time I went to the Wilderness Center. You were hosting a conference, I think, for NAI. I think they're defunct now, the National Association of Interpretation. Uh, or it could have been a no, we ANCA, did, maybe? ANCA, probably. So it's Association of Nature Center right. Administrators. Yeah. So I, I was there for an ANCA conference, and I was blown away. I actually, when I got came back to our Nature Center, I sat down and wrote a list of 50 things that we can do to take Beaver Meadow to the next level just because we were such a small center and you know it's just where we were at at the time right. but going to the wilderness center and seeing this sizable operation with things like an endowment and um mm -hmm. you know lots of volunteers and just lots of connections in the community it was impressive to my young well, naturalist well, eyes who had been thrust into an administration position that I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a great way to learn. But after I'd done it for a while, and as you said, it requires a lot of ambition. Yes. And the annual wheel never stops. No. You roll from one busy season into another. Um, but one of the things that I felt, and I would just be interested in getting your take on it, is... 
like I felt my job as a naturalist was to try to reach people who didn't have a deep relationship with nature, young or old, and to try to set them on that path, to pique their interest, to show them what was in their backyard. And very often at the nature center, I felt that the people that were coming already had that. Yeah, the, the old preaching to the choir. Right. And thing. Yes. part of me, and not all the time, but part of me felt, am I preaching to the choir? And I had someone, I, was, I talked to an old volunteer about this who'd been doing it a long time, a great educator, and he said, Bill, if you can only take, if you take just one kid and change their mind, you'll have done your job. And I understood where he was coming from with that, but part of me said, if I spend all this time and I only change one mind, no! (laughs) I'm like, no, I want to be doing something where I feel like I'm reaching a lot of minds. And that's one reason I went into the classroom, because I felt like, and that's one reason I went into elementary, is because I said, I can take these kids, um, I can do nature-themed things with them all the time, and kind of twist them to my thinking, you know? Sure. and I don't know, like, part of me says, is that too cynical of you? I, I don't know. I mean, what, what's your take on it? No, no, I, I, think, I, I think there was, a, there was a time when people in nature education put themselves on this high pedestal. Our job is just to teach the facts, and then they, you know, they will... Drag and brag. The right? passion will follow from everybody that listens to our grand voices, <laughs> you know, and... Um, the, I, and and that we shouldn't advocate, you know. That's oh, we're you know that's beneath us to advocate. And no, no, <laughs> we we should be advocating for nature, and we should be telling people that it matters, right? Because guess what? And that evolution the, is really <laughs> the the people that are out destroying nature's have no have, they have no problem advocating for their point of view. True, they have no. No qualms about that. Right. And that, it feeds into our, our podcast as well, because I haven't talked to Steve about it a lot, but I have a struggle where I'm constantly almost self-editing or being aware of how I'm talking and the things I'm covering, because I don't want to make the podcast too technical. And in a certain sense, I always want to make the podcast more, lack of a better term, more goofy and more accessible for more people. Like, right. I think to myself, my friends that aren't into nature, I want them to listen to this podcast. Right. Like we did a, a Screech Owl episode where right. I tricked Steve. I had another friend hiding in the woods playing a bobcat sound. We were out at night. Uh-huh. And I had a friend playing a bobcat sound, and Steve was seriously afraid. At one point, he went running and pulled the mic out of my hand. <laughs> and we laughed, and, you know, <laughs> that to me was such a great episode. It was, sure. it was a Screech Owl episode. Yeah. Um, you know, we called some Screech Owls in. We talked about the natural history of Screech Owls. But I felt that's an episode I could tell anybody to listen to. Yeah. And they would enjoy it. And when I used to teach volunteers at the Nature Center, they would be so afraid. I don't know every plant. I don't know every tree. And I would say, your job is to show kids a good time. It's not to identify everything no. with them. Because if they have a good time, then they're going to want to spend more time on that. It's to communicate that passion. Right, right. The, the people pick up on the passion. Right. And I think that's the heart of good teaching, yes. is just to let that passion shine through. Yes. Yeah. But I think yes. there is some, there's an art to it as well, yeah. right? Yeah, well, 
I don't know. Maybe a talent, you know. Right. But I think, to an extent, that can be learned. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. yeah. To an extent. We were. Oh, probably... I, I gotta say, bobcat noise. That's great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if, if there's anything that'll scare your pants off, <laughs> you, you think the most horrible <laughs> monster in the world. You should listen just to the first twelve minutes okay. of that episode because I'll have to go back. And... He was so afraid. He's like, ah, and. It almost backfired because he didn't want to keep going. Mm-hmm. Like he wanted to go back, and I kept, "Come on, let's just get closer." Just, I don't want to get closer. <laughs> <laughs> he was seriously afraid. Uh, they can make <laughs> oh. some frightening sounds, right? Yeah, yeah. But I'll probably cut this part out. But we were just at the Natural History Museum yesterday, uh-huh. and we we went to their planetarium. Uh-huh. And they showed a movie, and the movie was great, Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about dark matter. But sure. afterwards, they had a guy do like a 10-minute uh, night sky show, and he, you could tell he had a gift. Yeah, He was just so easy with the crowd, like funny but casual, but presenting us, giving us solid information. And I went up to him after and just said, you have a gift. You know, you have a gift for doing this. So. Well, I, I would say one, one of the things uh, I've had an avocation over the years as a storyteller. Right. And uh, I was actually at one time considered becoming a professional storyteller. Well, I could tell. And uh, didn't. Probably, it was probably a wise decision not to. Um, but... When I, I started getting interested in you know how can I make talks more interesting, mm-hmm. and th- this is kind of a long story, but uh, I ha- I had a girlfriend at the time, and y- you know she she said well we've got to go watch this guy on PBS, and and the guy was he was real popular in the seventies as a lecturer he was called the Love Doctor of course your girlfriend wants you to see this <laughs> and and he was a psychologist that. You know, Who was to, it? Uh, Leo Biscaglia. Oh yeah, and he I was, remember his books. Yeah, he yeah. was he was a real popular guy, and and he was a, a noted speaker, and so my, you know, I never would have watched this, but I had a girlfriend, you know, and <laughs> sure. we, us guys do things, you know, <laughs> and so I was watching this guy, and at the time, you know, I was doing nature talks and stuff, and was trying to figure out how to make them more interesting. And I was watching this guy talk about these relationships, and what the what the guy did, it, he was a storyteller. Right. He would tell us an anecdote. There'd maybe be a little bit of a lesson in the anecdote. He would string it into the next anecdote with some facts and, you know, in, information. But then he was off telling another story, and he mesmerized the audiences. And and I looked at what he was doing, and then so whenever I gave nature programs, talks or whatever and it went into the podcast as well oh yeah is is if you can take your information and make it a story people are wired to listen right to story they're not only going to remember it better they'll be inspired yeah hopefully they'll just be interested more. yeah and it doesn't it doesn't have to be much right and that's like you just said before it's not just about presenting facts. Yeah. And, and that's one thing that one thing that worries me with the podcast is sometimes I, I'm always aware I don't want to just be presenting facts. Well, we were mentioning, you know, 
bobcat sounds. Yeah. If you just played the sounds of the bobcat and say, oh, this is a territorial, you know, <laughs> you know, if you just did that. But if you say, this is bobcat sounds, and my gosh, the first time I heard that, it scared my pants off. Right. And and then you then you can talk about why is the bobcat making that noise? Give him a hook. But give him a hook. But I mean, but acknowledge the the wonder of right. that that those horrible sounds. <laughs> right. You know, as a as but as a story. And that's why I think. I'm proud of that episode because I think anyone who listens to that episode, yeah. they're going to remember what a bobcat sounds like. Yeah. So oh, yeah. yeah. Now I feel bad that we didn't talk about more about the ecology of the bobcat sound, but that was, it was a screech owl episode, so. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no that, that's fine. Yeah. You know, the, the, the you know, the, what you want for the general public, they're not going to be biologists. Right. You we don't know. expect them to be. What we want, we want when they walk into the voting booth, is to vote for nature. Right. That's what we want. And especially these days, right? Especially these days. <laughs> you know, we, we want them, you know, we live in a democratic society, and public support for nature is the only thing that can save it. Right. And as our culture, you know, I'm sure you've seen it as you get older. I mean, even myself, I'm in my mid-40s, I've seen it. It's so easy to live a life completely separate from right. nature. And the way in which even casual contact with nature can enrich people's lives. Right. And it will be a tragedy if we lose that right. as a society. It will be a tragedy. People will never know the pleasures they didn't have <laughs> of hearing a bobcat sound right. and then telling their friends about getting their pants scared off by bobcat noises. <laughs> right, right. So I, I think this is a, a good spot. One of the questions I wanted to ask was, through your long history as a naturalist, you know, what is you, and this could be in the education realm or just in your personal experiences of hiking or birding or whatever, what is one of your most memorable nature experiences? And I know I'm putting you on the spot. So. Yeah, that that is. There's 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 been... You know, I've been blessed to sure. have lots, lots of, of great experience. The first time I heard a bobcat <laughs> in, in nature and not knowing what it was at the time, it was like, my gosh. So know, what was it doing at the time? It was just these horrible growls, okay. you know, just blood-curdling. Because <laughs> I, I had someone tell me once that a bobcat... A bobcat can sound exactly like a woman screaming. They can make a lot of sounds. Now, have you heard that before? No, I haven't heard that. All right, because I've, I've tried to look for that. Yeah. And I've never been able to find anything beyond, you know, websites off the beaten path saying, here's the sound of a bobcat. It sounds like a woman screaming. Yeah. Um, but nothing, quote unquote, official. Yeah. So, great story. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the... The great nature experiences I had, I, I part of when I was at the Wilderness Center, part of what I did was lead eco tours right. to uh, various places, and, and I I did it to raise money for the Wilderness Center. You know, it was a, just a lot but of also travel, to go see those places, the travel right? program. You know, really, uh, I I was real pragmatic about it. I went places where I thought I could get people to go. Okay, so uh, it wasn't your personal travel. Uh... No, it wasn't my <laughs> it wasn't my personal travel agenda. Not okay. at all. I was very, you know, I was, you know, I needed to raise money 
keep the nature center afloat. Right. And uh, so a lot, a lot of my great nature experiences were on these eco tours, showing other people having, enjoying other people getting excited. One of my stories, there was this this one guy that went on. He went on several of my my nature tours, and he was a hyperactive adult. <laughs> Wonderful guy. I mean, you know, the, give you the shirt off his back kind of guy. You know. And a wonderful, wonderful guy. And we went up to, we were uh, an eco-tour at Yellowstone. And uh, we were floating uh, the Snake River. And, you know, there's a lot of eagle, bald eagles along the Snake River. And he, you know, he wanted to see a bald eagle. He wanted, and he had this video camera. You know, VHS video camera. You know, he was videoing <laughs> on the river. On the river, on the with the whole... full size VHS tapes. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. I mean, it was in a big raft. You know, it sure. was. He wasn't going to dunk his camera, uh, and so floating down the river, he's got his camera. A bald eagle comes out of a tree right in front of his raft, hits the water, grabs a fish, comes flies up into a tree. <laughs> on and film. Yeah, he got. Oh wow! He got the whole thing on his video, <laughs> and uh, you know, so the, the the float trips over. I was not in his raft. I was in it. There was two rafts, and I was in the other raft. You know, but you know, we knew that he'd gotten this, and <laughs> I mean, he was just, you know, over the moon, and. And we, we got out and we were, you know, the outfitter, you know, we got out of the rafts and we were walking back to our vehicles. And he comes up and he puts his arm around my shoulder. There's tears running down wow. his cheeks. <laughs> Literally, there's tears running down his cheeks. You know, he was so moved by that experience, which, you know, is, is a cool experience, even for an experienced naturalist to actually get to witness an eagle catching sure. a fish. I mean, that's pretty cool. But that just adds that whole other layer. Yeah. And you had a role in making that happen. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that, that, you know, that's, that stands out as, as a, a really great experience. Yeah. So on, on the eco-tours you went, you know, is there a place, you know, is there one place that you took an eco-tour to where you would say, if anyone's going to go somewhere to experience nature, they should go to that spot? Um... I would say the Galapagos Islands. Okay. I was there three times with with wow. eco tours, and uh, it, you know it's it's not on the way to anywhere else. <laughs> and I would say you know put on your bucket list a you know a a, a long trip to the Galapagos, not yeah. you know where you not a three day, not a three day. No, yeah. no. If you can get a week or ten days. Um, where you go to several islands and snorkel a lot. The, the Galapagos, uh, you know, it's got cool water there, so it's not coral reefs, but it's so volcanic, it has the same structure as coral reefs. You know, this, kind of the same physical structure in the substrate un, under the under the water, but the cool water, highly oxygenated, nutrient-rich, cool water supports huge populations of fish, and then the birds follow that <laughs> and the wildlife in the Galapagos um, that they didn't evolve with humans right and so the, the humans don't really mean anything to them so <laughs> you walk right up to it so that that's an incredible place of course Yellowstone is you know there's yeah. no place like the greater Yellowstone ecosystem right there's I mean definitely uh, 
you know, I can't say enough about that. Yeah, just beyond the wolves yeah. and the grizzlies, and there's all the thermal. Yeah, yeah. the the geology and but and the and the wildlife is like no place. Right. And uh, so that would, I would say those places. All right. So I've been to Yellowstone, but now I need to go to the Galapagos. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe uh, Steve and I can go record there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be great. All right, and just the last question I want to ask, um, were, were there any naturalists, environmentalists, books, anything that you would say were you know, your inspirations for this life that you've led? Or even um, along the way that you, know, you think, if someone has a passion for nature, they need to read this book or look into this person? Or... Boy, that, that's tough. One, one book that had a, a, a great impact... You got you got to look at, at when I did my biology education. Uh, Everett O. Wilson it was just developing the theory of island biogeography, right. and so that wasn't in my formal education. And I learned I learned that later, you know, because it obviously went came to dominate the thinking in conservation biology right. was the was the theory of island biogeography, and it was. You know, many years later, I uh, a book by David Quammen uh, called uh, "The Song of the, the Dodo. Dodo." The Song of the Dodo, and I, I would recommend that's a, it's a terrific book if you like nature, and it it's a little dated. I mean, sure. the theory has advanced since Quammen wrote it, but it's a fabulous travel log. It's a great history of conservation biology, and at the same time gives you. Uh, you know, a really solid background. So I, I would really recommend Quammen's book, Song of the Dodo. Okay. And then any books by him. He's a great writer. I'm rereading right now Wild Thoughts from Wild Places. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, 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 is, he is great. I'd forgotten what a great writer he is. You know, uh, of, of non-technical books for a naturalist, I actually found the Yule Gibbons books on, you know, stalking the wild asparagus. Right. I found those to be great. You know, they were kind of fun, especially with my botanical orientation. Uh, they were kind of fun, and because in his recipes for eating wild stuff, he also has a lot of folklore in there. Oh, yeah. A lot of it's probably pretty bogus. But, uh, it's fun to read. It's fun to read, and, and it, you know, for someone... If someone was becoming an interpretive naturalist and, and going to be leading nature walks and that sort of thing, I great I, background. I think those would be a great background. And that's a whole it, series. Yeah, it's a, there's a whole series. Yeah. The healthful herbs and, yeah. and anyway, those, those were great. Um, have, have you heard the the story that circulates that Yule Gibbons died from eating uh, something he shouldn't have? <laughs> I've heard. I've had several people tell me that when I bring up his name and. I've actually looked it up, and no, that's not what he not, did. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I don't think so. <laughs> no. I, I, but he, he did die of some, something that... Something natural. Yeah, yeah. something natural, but yeah. not from eating his... Not from doing his <laughs> not recipes. Not from his wild edible, yeah. yeah. Uh, so th I found those to be, to be great. Um, you know, field guides, you, you know, I've certainly got my share of field guides. Sure. And... Uh, so in the great debate in the wildflower guides, are you a Peterson or a Newcombs? You know I've got both, <laughs> okay. uh, and uh, I tend to go. I I used Peterson before Newcombs, but 
I'm, I'm not 100% satisfied with either. Right. But, but both have the advantage of being illustrations and not photographs. Right. So you're an illustration man. I, absolutely. You know, <laughs> I agree. I, you know, an artist can depict the ideal way, way better than what a photograph can. Sure. I so, I, you know, a, a good field guide artist is always, in my opinion, superior to photographs. All right. There you go. So that... That would be my recommendation. Okay. Well, there's been so many, so many books on natural science I've read over the years. Right, and I, I would say don't you know don't neglect you know magazine articles and, sure. and that sort of thing. Yeah, on the natural world because usually, you know, from reputable <laughs> sources. <laughs> that is true. Yes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Definitely. Uh, the, the, there's there's good information in those. Sure. Uh, now, do you? Do you subscribe, say, to any natural history journals, or no, not really? You know, I don't. I don't subscribe to any technical journals. Yeah, okay. Not any technical anymore. But you know, I'm a member of like every nature advocacy organization. Sure. You know, and they, a lot of them have magazines. And, yeah. 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 I, I don't read those too carefully, you know, because I, I mean, not to put them down, but you know, the the natural history information in there sure. is usually not news to me. So <laughs> once in a while, something will, you know will catch catch that but you know if you just have a, a good passion you know an, uh, an amateur passion for nature uh, you know a lot of those are great right you just try not to get bogged down in their advocacy not that advocacy isn't important but you know that can be so depressing it can it really can yeah <laughs> and that that was something we did in wild ideas is you know with all the environmental problems out there uh, we, we made a conscious decision not to let it drift into gloom and doom right. over environmental stuff. I mean, we would comment, you know, and you know, occasionally and, and mention when there were concerns or anything. But that wasn't the focus of the right. the podcast to dwell on that. No, I never felt depressed after listening to. Yeah, it. I felt inspired to go yeah. out. And, yeah. It was it was all you know. We always you know our we wanted to inspire people to love nature through the podcast. Well, you did. So, so let me say on behalf of everyone, thank you for doing that. Okay. <laughs> well, if, if for 20 bucks you can get all those episodes on a flash drive, yeah. gee, flash drives used to cost more than 20 bucks. <laughs> so you don't have all the episodes? Uh, no, Joanne has them. Okay. She, she has them all. all right. And I, I may have to go give them my 20 bucks and get to the flash drive all the episodes. I hope they would give that to you for free. Yeah. <laughs> well, a, a, you know, a big donor should... Uh, uh, Call up the Wilderness Center and and say, uh, underwrite putting them back up all all back up on iTunes. Yeah, <laughs> that would be a great thing. So for for it to keep going, I miss doing the podcast uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and so I'm glad you're you picked <laughs> up the mantle. Well, if we're down here again in Ohio. Would you be willing to come along and, and record something with us? Maybe you bet. All right, that'd be great. You bet. Well, thanks again for doing this. Uh, on behalf of Steve, I uh, I want to just say thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'm I'm always happy to talk about nature and share it with right. others. And parents, you want to say it? Get those kids outside. Let them play. Get, get muddy, get wet, get dirty. Enjoy nature. All right. So we hope you enjoyed Bill's conversation with Gordon Maupin. As always, links to Wild Ideas, the podcast, and every other linkable thing they mentioned in the episode notes. All right. But let's switch back to the good mic. Oh yeah, that's better. So first and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you, Vicki Brown. 
We're thankful for every single patron, but at the end of every show, we give a special shout-out to our top patrons. Rob, we named the dog Indy, Nick, and especially Ken, Diane, Morgan, Alyssa, Mountain Misery Farms, Elizabeth, Daniel, and Susan. Thank you all so much. We also want to thank our new five-star reviewers. So thank you, Camille CE. I think. I'm, I'm so bad at family names. <laughs> so keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. So if you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Visit us on Instagram at fieldguidespodcast. Follow us on Twitter at fieldguidespod. Like and follow us on Facebook. And visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash thefieldguides. But if you're like me and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to more people. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon for our next regularly scheduled episode. Hope we won't bore people too much. No. <laughs>